0: The following sermon was recorded live at Foundation Church of Fredericksburg in downtown Fredericksburg, Virginia. All right, well, good morning, guys. You can find your way to your seats again. Hold on, you want to move? Yeah, there we go. Good morning. If you have your Bible, please open it to Jeremiah chapter 6. The book of Jeremiah is near the middle of your Bible. If you open it and you're somewhere in the Psalms or Proverbs, just go write a few more books and you're going to land in Jeremiah. Jeremiah is a, one of the major prophets. And we call them major not because they're more important than the other prophets, but because their books are traditionally longer. And uh, Jeremiah is a prophet to the southern tribe of Judah, And we began uh, just a few months ago at looking at this book and what it might reveal to us about the nature of God and His covenant with His people. Before we begin, I want to thank Pastor Jake for preaching the last four months for us out of the book of Genesis. I pray that they were fruitful for you who are studying along with us. Uh, And we have four more weeks in Genesis after the summer, where he'll look at the patriarchs, uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and and Joseph. So uh, thank you to Pastor Jake for that. Let's begin with prayer, and then we'll turn to God's word. Father, thank you for your word, indeed. It's gift and grace to us. God, I ask that this morning as we turn our hearts and minds attention to your word and to the study of it, that we would read and listen and hear with spiritual eyes and ears, that we would engage the sermon and the truths of your word spiritually, not just intellectually. We're not here to, to earn a degree in Bible study, but to let your word do its work in us. So Lord, we pray that our hearts and minds would be focused and attentive to your word, that we would indeed receive it with joy and thanksgiving and that where it needs to correct us, we would welcome that correction and where it needs to encourage us, we would open up and be filled with joy and encouragement from it. Help us to, to see and understand where we must grow. And God, in these short minutes we have left together, would you work such a mighty work in us that only you could do for your glory. We pray for this time now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, chapter six is an ending to the first section of the book of Jeremiah, the first six chapters, obviously when Jeremiah first wrote these, they did not all come together in one long prophecy. The book of Jeremiah is an anthology of sorts. It's a compilation of Jeremiah's prophecies compiled and edited by either him or by his right-hand man, Baruch. And these were meant to be read by those post-exilic, or even currently exilic, believing Israelites. As they wonder about the hope that awaits them, because Babylon has crushed and oppressed them, they look and say, how did we get here? And Jeremiah's answers are there to remind them. But as God's word often does, it's preserved for even us today, many millennia later, that we too could hear and read the same lessons and understand the same truths about God, that we too might be faithful to where Israel was faithless, that we might be comforted by the same fact of God's faithfulness that ought to have comforted Israel and Judah, that we could plead with reformation and Godliness, the way Jeremiah pleaded with Judah to repent and to listen and to heed God's word. So chapters 1 through 6 is really a short introduction to the rest of the book of Jeremiah. We see all these major themes that have popped up so far. We see, of course, judgment and repentance, themes which will recur often throughout the book. We see rebellion, idolatry as the root cause of their sin, and of God's wrath and his anger towards them for it. Many themes of restoration of what awaits them even after they've been restored to the promised land that is Canaan, there is a greater land of promise that they too may hope for where all their pain and suffering is not meaningless but is given their answer and all the true promises of God being fulfilled. So chapter 6 Summarizes, it ends this first section of the book of Jeremiah. And those previous themes addressed in chapters before are now referenced and they're reiterated to make a clear point. Because though these are separate oracles or, or these independent prophecies of Jeremiah, they've been supernaturally by God brought together for for future readers like ourselves, in order that we might see how these themes of restoration, of repentance, of judgment, of wrath, of of mercy, will teach us about the very nature of God. In fact, that is our true aim throughout the study of this book, is to try to capture a glimpse or a picture of the true nature of God. You may ask why we have the Bible in the first place. But it's not simply, as some may say, basic instructions before leaving earth, as my youth group once taught me. The Bible is much more than a set of rules or even a set of principles. It's much more than a body of doctrine, although it's not less than any of those things. But it is more than that in that it actually is a picture, a portrait of the heart of God for his people. As you read and study God's word, as you look into the various books like the prophet here in Jeremiah, we see that there is a picture of God that he wants you and I to behold and to wonder at. That's our goal throughout this book. Indeed, of any book of our study in the Bible is to catch a clearer, more accurate grasp of who God is. Because when we know who God is, more clearly and more accurately, you and I can worship him for who he is. The danger, of course, of not studying God, the proper term being theology, theos, God, ology, the study of, means that we then form God in our own image. We make up our own doctrine and say, God must be like this, or I prefer him to be like that, when it's contrary to God's word. So what we'll do this morning and throughout our study of Jeremiah is ask always the question, who is God? How has he revealed himself to us through the prophet Jeremiah. How is he revealing himself to Judah? How are we to understand him today? A second question we must always ask then is what does that God want with us? We see clearly that he had business with with Israel, with the northern tribe here and in the southern tribe of Judah. It was his chosen people, Israel was, and they've fallen into, into ruin and idolatry, and of course he made it his business to go and correct, rebuke, and rescue his people. But what what does this God have to do with you and I here today? And that's the central question of the Christian life. And to ask the question that, what does God want with me, is not to squint at the wind and ask unanswerable philosophical questions. It's not to try to read the proverbial tea leaves and understand the future hoping by some good fortune we'll stumble upon some secret will that God had carved in a special stone that only you and I could read. Instead, when we ask this question, what does God want with us, and when our lives themselves become so dispositionally ordered, that is, that we live in such a way that our lives ask that question even if our our mouths don't, when our lives ask that question, We begin to inquire upon these things, not like cryptographers who are decoding a secret language, but as people who have had divine favor of a direct and an intelligible special revelation. That is, we can stand on solid ground when we ask the question, what God wants of our lives, because he has given us a unique answer to that question. He has told us in his very word what he wants with you and with me. There are, of course, secret aspects to his will that you and I do not know and often only know in part in hindsight. Does God indeed have a plan for your life? As Jeremiah would later say in 2911, yes. Is it his plan for you to know it? Probably not. But God does have a particular purpose and wants to do something with your life And Jeremiah gives us a glimpse into the kind of God who wants us to ask that kind of question. And therefore, we stand on solid ground when we stand on the word of God to answer that question. And what we discover then is that there's really nothing new or novel in life, or to borrow a phrase from the teacher of Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun when it comes to answering the question, what does God want with me? New things... New ways, new paths, new purposes, those might be seductive. Those new ways might promise an easier journey, a more prosperous life in the here and the now. But the truth is that for every circumstance and every need of God's people, whatever it may be, He has already established an unsurprisingly, an unsurpassingly wise and clear way for you to navigate that need. Does that make sense? Whatever your circumstances in life, and you ask the question, well, what does God want with my life? What does he want me to do here? It's not to wonder about which direction the wind blows, but to focus your eyes on his word because he has established his will for you in it. This is Jeremiah's point throughout the book. This is why Jeremiah exists, to tell people that God's word has come to him that they should have heeded it long ago, that he's continually set and sent these messengers to them, prophets and overseers, to help them, remind them of God's word because there are the answers to life. But Judah's problem was that they turned aside from that way. They refused to listen and they came up with their own way. The path that the word of God sets before us is neglected and covered with vines and we decide and said often, as Judah does here, to blaze our own path contrary to God's word. And so the question on Jeremiah's mind is, well, then will God help get them back, or has His patience finally ended? Well, Christian, you are as the New Testament has once described you, one of the way. That was the earliest moniker for Christians, not the designation Christian, which was first pejorative, but they were simply known as followers of the way. Of course, that brings to mind Jesus' own statements that I am the truth and the way and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And his way and his teaching is the path that his followers, his disciples, are to live. So Christians, you are one of the followers of the way. And thus you too, even while we read Jeremiah, have as much at stake at examining where your feet lead you as Judah did in its day. So the the central question then you will ask yourself this morning is that the, the way of your life, is it his way or is it your own? Let's look then at the text here in Jeremiah 6. We won't read every verse, but I want to point your attention to just a few. We're going to break chapter 6 into 3, verses 1 through 15, 16 through 21, and then 22 through to the end of verse 30. This first section, the first 15 verses, probably is its own prophecy, and the others are their own as well. So verses 1 through 15 is a prophecy primarily then about God's warning and about God's judgment, much of what we've seen already in the past several chapters. Remember, God is warning through the prophet Jeremiah here that he is on a collision course with them. His wrath and his anger against their idolatry and against their sin needs to be met. The covenant in which he entered with them demands that this sin be dealt with. And he's giving them grace after grace after grace that they may heed this warning and not suffer the consequence of covenant unfaithfulness, which it demands. So in these first 15 verses, we see two main things about God. We see first, of course, God's judgment against sin. But more importantly, we see with this God's judgment and his love. Let's look at the first eight verses. He he says through Jeremiah, Flee for safety, O people of Benjamin, from the midst of Jerusalem. Notice at one point in chapter 4, he said to flee to Zion, to Jerusalem. But now he says flee from Jerusalem. The siege has gotten closer. Blow the trumpet of Tekoa. Raise a signal on Beth Hacharim, for disaster looms out of the north and a great destruction. This refers to the northern kingdom of Babylon coming to lay siege to the city. Verse 2, the lovely and delicately bred I will destroy the daughter of Zion. Shepherds with their flocks shall come against her. They shall pitch their tents against her. They shall pasture each in his place. Prepare war against her. Arise, let us attack at noon. Woe to us, for the day declines, for the shadows of evening lengthen, arise, and let us attack by night and destroy her palaces. For thus says the Lord of hosts, cut down her trees and cast up a siege mount against Jerusalem. This is the city that must be punished. There is nothing but oppression within her, as a well keeps its water fresh, so she keeps fresh her evil. Violence and destruction are heard within her, sickness and wounds are ever before me. We'll be warned, O Jerusalem, lest I turn from you in disgust, lest I make you a desolation and an uninhabited land. This is strong language from a God who has entered into covenant relationship. We tend to think of God as, as loving, as merciful, as kind. And yet, here, look at verse 8. There is a tone very clearly of disgust in God's word. But what is it about God that disgusts him from Jerusalem? But Then it is in verse 6 and 7. This city that must be punished because there is nothing but oppression within her. It says that as a well keeps its water fresh, so she keeps fresh her evil, violence, and destruction, or hurt, sickness, and wounds are before me much like when Jake taught us about the Tower of Babel and the flood before it, that what moved God to act was not an unfaithfulness on his part or a desire to start over, but rather it was the height of sin and evil which had reached its peak and demanded no longer patience from a patient and forbearing God, but a just answer to sin. Judah has run its course. Its sin has piled up before God. He can smell the stench of transgression, and he must answer it. So what is revealed about the heart of God is that God is disgusted by sin. He is disgusted by it. In fact, in verse 8, we see it is a picture of his heart. It says, Lest my heart turn from you in anger... So, the very heart of God, while turning into righteousness and justice and love indeed, is disgusted or turned away from oppression, injustice, sin, violence, and destruction against neighbor. A failure to love God is ultimately dangerous ground for turning away his heart and disgust. So, his heart is revealed against sin. Injustice, violence, and oppression. What was happening in Jerusalem is they were taking advantage of one another. Stealing and lying. And the rich were getting richer while the poor were getting poorer. They were maligned and abused while others were padding their own pockets and growing their own wealth. They stepped over those in need to care only about themselves. They prostituted themselves out to the other foreign gods and nations, they began to take what they thought was the best parts of their religion and mingle them with the best parts of the other nations' religions, and thereby defiling God's true and good word. This was forbidden in his law, and yet those who desired a life for themselves, of ease, of gratitude, of plenty, sought to give themselves away to the false god and to the other nations. And so they did that on the back of others. So the heart of God is revealed against injustice and against oppression and against violence and against their sin. And yet notice what he calls Jeremiah to do. Look back in verse 1 again. He says to go and to tell them that judgment is coming. This announcement is a mercy in and of itself that judgment is coming and you still have a chance to flee from Jerusalem before the enemy lays siege to the city. Disaster looms, it says, but it has not yet arrived. It looms out of the north. Great destruction is imminent, but it is not present. What a mercy of God's gracious provision to preach through Jeremiah that those who are impending disaster might yet turn from it. And so he says, go like a, Like a field dresser, go and take and glean from this field all that is near. Look in verse 9. Thus says the Lord of hosts, They shall glean thoroughly as a vine the remnant of Israel. Like a grape gatherer, pass your hand over its branches. This refers, of course, to the ancient custom of in the vineyards, He would often go through and grab the grapes off the vine and leave those stubborn grapes, which did not come along on first pass, on the vine for those who were poor and didn't have enough to provide for themselves. And they could go through the field and take for themselves. And that was the way that many provided. This, of course, wasn't happening. And so God sends Jeremiah to go and to preach to them that they might be gleaned and not left on the vine, for God's wrath was coming. Go and glean Israel thoroughly as a vine. Grab the remnant that he might save. Take your hand again and pass it over the branches. Save for yourself the remnant that I have called. But in verse 10 we hear Jeremiah's answer. Well, to whom am I to speak and give warning? That they may hear me. Behold, their ears are uncircumcised. It's closed. They will not listen. Behold, the word of the Lord to them is an object of scorn. They take no pleasure in it. Therefore, I am full of the wrath of the Lord. I'm weary of holding it in. The Lord answers, Pour it out, that is his word, Pour it out upon the children in the streets, upon the gathering of the young men also. Both husband and wife shall be taken, the elderly and the very age. Pour out the word of this impending judgment, because judgment is coming. Verse 12 says that their houses shall be turned over to others, their field and wives together, for I will stretch out my hands against the inhabitants of the land, declares the Lord. From the least to the greatest, every one of them is greedy for unjust gain. From the prophet to the priest, every which one of them deals falsely. They have healed the wound of my people lightly. They say, peace, peace, when there is no peace. And were they ashamed when they committed this abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. They did not know even how to blush. And therefore they shall fall among those who fall. And at that time I shall punish them and they shall be overthrown, declares the Lord. So there's a gracious provision of God in his revealing of his heart against sin and injustice to yet announce through his prophet salvation which still may be had if they return and flee from their sin. In fact, what we see in verse 11 and verse 15, is that God's very word is his warning, which is to be taken. This is how we approach God's word, as if it were his very utterances before us. He says, go and pour out my word, that word which was, was weary on the lips of Jeremiah after he spoke this over and over again, after he complained and lamented to God, they're not listening to me, I, I've tried it, I've said it over and over again, I've preached and I've, I've, I've pled, and they're not, they're not doing anything, Lord. In fact, he says, I'm beginning to understand why you're so angry. I'm beginning to feel the wrath of the Lord myself. God's answer is, take the word. Take the word of warning of God's wrath and the word of salvation and hope and pour it out indiscriminately. Keep preaching, he says to Jeremiah. Pour it out on the children in the street, upon the gatherings of young men and the old men alike, the husbands and the wife, the whole household from the least to the greatest, the prophet and the priest, they all need to hear this message of this word of warning. Again, God's gracious provision is seen in just the indiscriminate nature of who can receive this promise of salvation. It's not reserved for the elite. Jeremiah didn't hold it to himself and escaped with his family, but goes into the street often at great physical cost to himself and preaches to those very ones who are sinning and leading the cause against God. God's own word is his warning. It's his testament to us. So, friends, do you see that when God speaks, he reveals himself to us, and we are to study and behold his word as if we would a portrait in a museum? How does God teach us about himself? Well, yes, that he is wrathful against sin, but also that he is gracious, that he possesses both judgment and love. What are the implications for us? The implication, of course, is that he revealed his words to us as much as he has to Jeremiah and to Judah. And that time, just like for Judah, is not on our side. Friends, you and I do not know how much longer we have on this planet. We do not know how much longer until Christ returns. It may be tomorrow. It may be in another thousand years. But time is not guaranteed to us And the wrath of God and His justice and His faithfulness is the only sure thing that we can cling to. So as we examine ourselves in light of the picture of God He reveals for us in His word through Jeremiah, we must remember that time is ticking away. So if you've been on the fence about what it means to be a Christian, to take hold of the promise and the offer of salvation, know that time isn't on your side here. You can't say, I'll, I'll do this tomorrow, I'll read it then, I'll have that conversation later. The time is now, friends, to take hold of the precious promises of God offered to you here now that the impending judgment of God against sin will come, inevitably. And if it's not in your life, it will be the moment you wake in the life to come. So friends, time is not on our side. There's a sense of urgency which you and I must feel And Christians, if you have made that conscious decision to trust in the promises of God, you still must be urged by the same sense of the limitedness of time to go and preach just as Jeremiah did to your unbelieving brothers and sisters, to neighbors in the community. The other implication for us is that even those who have been given the advantage of the oracles of God, like Judah has here, They've experienced a revival under King Josiah. They, they found the Word. They, they had some sort of reformation, and yet, even that was not enough. They had the very law of God, and yet, they kept their ears closed off from it. That you, too, Christian, must consider whether or not you have closed your ears off to the Word of God that you might line your pockets, that you might grow in comfort over discomfort for the gospel, that you might have stepped over your obligations in order to give yourself a leg up elsewhere. Beware of the hardness of heart. Beware of those uncircumcised ears that will not listen to the word of God. It doesn't matter how long you've been in church or how long you profess to be a Christian. The truth is, as we see here in the book of Jeremiah, that any one of us if we do not take seriously what God has revealed in his word, may fall prey to closing our ears to his word and his offer of justice. And we will face then his wrath. So God reveals about himself, both he is a God of judgment and justice, but of love. For all of this is a gracious provision through the mouth of Jeremiah to call out those remnant who will believe his word, who will perhaps for the 40th time Hear Jeremiah preach, but for the first time, actually hear it. Repent and flee from God's wrath. In the next set of verses, in verses 16 through 21, we see then this promise that comes of rest. What does it look like then to receive this word? What is the nature of that word which we must receive? It says then in verse 16, Thus says the Lord, another oracle a prophecy. Stand by the roads and look, and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is, and walk in it, and find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. So I have set watchmen over you, saying, pay attention to the sound of the trumpet. That is the the warning of the word. But they said, we will not pay attention. Therefore, hear nations, and know, O congregation, what will happen to them. God announces once again the judgment he will bring and the disaster he will bring on them. This is, of course, the answer to all of life's problems. When you find yourself facing down the barrel of the gun of God's wrath and you say, how is, how is this going to ever be avoided? If I'm guilty of sin and God's wrath against injustice and unrighteousness is aimed directly at me, what chance do we have? Judah was staring down the barrel of the gun of God's wrath. And God says, in verse 16, Stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is. And walk in that. Walk. See, the word of God is the path to the good life. That is the way to righteousness. Keep your thumb in Jeremiah. Just go back a few books to Psalm chapter 1. I'm sure you're familiar with it. Psalm chapter 1. And listen to what the psalmist says here. And how it relates both to the good life, the way of righteousness, and the word. It says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in what? The law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. But the wicked are not so. They are like chaff that the wind drives away, and therefore the wicked will not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will not perish. What does the psalm teach us? That the path to the righteous, to the good life in which you actually prosper, is the life that is lived walking on the path of the word of God. Do, do you see that? that? That is where you must plant yourself. That is the path on which you must walk if you are to reap fruit in its season. If you are to sit among the righteous, if God is to count you among his own and not against those over whom he will give judgment. The word is the path to the good life. And he calls this path back in Jeremiah 16, the ancient path. And this path is ancient not just because it's old, though it is. It's ancient in the sense of being wise, full of wisdom and value, godliness, treasure. You've discovered this secret key to all of life's happiness, all of life's pleasure. Of course, it's not what you'd expect, but it's true. It says in verse 17 that he sends watchmen, the the carriers and the announcers of this word, so that he could correct and bring those wayward sinners back onto the path of righteousness by his word. They were called to teach and to preach and to call brothers and sisters back to themselves through the word of God. But this wasn't just a call to outward traditionalism. Look down further into verse 20. What use to me is frankincense that comes from Sheba, or sweet cane from a distant land. Your burnt offerings are not acceptable. Your sacrifices are not pleasing to me. Wait a minute. Isn't the word of God those ancient paths tell us that under the old covenant the sacrificial system had to give offerings, had to give incense, had to make these burnt these burnt offerings? Yes. But not for traditionalism's sake. What God has shown us elsewhere throughout the Bible is that outward religious activity does not please God. Your outward religious activity does not please God. It cannot. God looks at the heart. Of course he does not ignore our acts and our good works. But if our outward acts of religious activity come from a heart which has ultimately rejected that word's wise counsel and instruction, then it does not please God. In fact, the New Testament, Hebrews 11:6 I believe will say that anything apart from faith is sin. Faith is not simply an outward act of religious education. It is an act of the heart and worship of God. That is the ancient paths of God's word. That's the word which Jeremiah preached to Judah. That's the word you hold in your hands or on your phone. So friends, let us draw then comfort from these well-worn paths of righteousness, these well-worn paths of faith, and God's word that others have trod before us. Every saint in history has walked this same path of righteousness that you are called to walk on this morning. Consider the whole chapter of 11 in Hebrews. Those heroes of the faith, who though they did not have even the complete revelation of God as you have it, still believed and walked by faith, though their circumstances often countered that. At the end of that chapter, in verse 1 of chapter 12, the author then says, Since therefore we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, these other brothers and sisters who have also walked where you walk, let us then with confidence look to the joy and follow after Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. So friends, you and I as Christians can draw comfort from the fact that the Bible you hold in your hand encourages you as it has every other saint in history. In every other saint who will follow. It is the deep well from which every Christian has drawn to receive sustenance and joy. Let us, of course, walk them ourselves as we lead the way for those who come after us. Parents, your children are watching you walk the path, those ancient paths. Do not draw their attention to the newfangled path that was just cleared by this technology or by that teacher or that philosophy, but take them to the ancient path, hold their hands and walk down with them. Show them what it means to belong to a body of covenant believers. Take the Lord's Supper and explain it to them and say one day this meal is for you. As a child of God, show them God's word and say, this came to our forefathers many thousands of years ago and in a different language, but it is for you and us to believe just as they did today. Those ancient paths are for you to walk. They've been cleared. And yes, many tears and blood have been spilled on them along the way, but it is to these ancient paths of God's word which we are called to walk. And it is the only path that leads to righteousness, prosperity, to the good life. And by good life, I do not mean comfortable. I do not mean rich and wealthy. By the good life I mean whose joy is fulfilled, whose great love is answered in Christ. So God calls Jeremiah to preach both his love and his judgment, this word which warns them of this impending doom, but to escape and find rest as they walk along the ancient path. What happens if they don't? What happens if they do not listen, as it says in verse 16 and 17? They will not walk in it. They refuse. They will not pay attention. What will happen to them? When well, the next section, verses 20 through 30, we see that war then comes. This is the answer. This is Judah's alternative. Look in verses 22. Behold, the people are coming from the north country. That's Babylon. A great nation stirring from the farthest parts of the earth. They lay hold on bow and javelin. They are cruel and have no mercy. The sound of them, just the sound of them, is like the roaring sea. They ride on horses, set in array as a man for battle against you, O daughter of Zion. We have heard the report of it, and our hands fall helpless. Anguish has taken hold of us, pain as of a woman in labor. You can hear the fear, the trembling. Go out now into the field. Do not go out now into the field, nor walk in the road. For the enemy, he's there, he has a sword. Terror is on every side. O daughter of my people, put on sackcloth, roll in ashes. Make mourning as for an only son, most bitter lamentation. For suddenly, suddenly, the destroyer will come upon us. This is is Judith's alternative. Walk the path of righteousness, Heed the warning of God's word. Give yourself to the study and the delight of the law of the Lord, by which you may truly prosper, or face the alternative, which now at this point is essentially a fixed fate. This picture is the opposite of the rest which is found by those who walk that ancient path. There is no rest, there is no peace, there is only fear, there is trembling. There is destruction, there is lamenting. It's the opposite of the very thing offered by those who walk the ancient paths. And this picture here, just in Jeremiah, of Babylon's impending siege is a foreshadow, just even a foreshadow of God's coming and final judgment at which even Babylon itself, that great nation, will have to give an account. Listen to, to the Apostle John's word in Revelation 14. He says that I saw another flying angel directly overhead. This is a a vision he has. This angel with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory for the hour of judgment has come and worship him who has made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. And another angel, a second, followed saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all the nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Even this Babylon is fallen. And another angel, a third, followed them with a loud voice saying, If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on its forehead or on its hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels." and the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment will go up forever and ever. And they will have no rest, day or night. No rest, day or night. These worshipers of the beast of its image. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. The picture here, of course, is the path of righteousness, these well-worn, ancient paths, will lead us not to such a outcome, but to those whose faith is in Christ, who keep the commandments of God in their hearts, not outwardly only, will receive the gift of endurance in such trials. But those who continue to forge their own path of wickedness against God's word, indeed their outcome is severe. Well, as Jeremiah's early ministry then issued this warning after warning to Judah to return to their covenant faithfulness, to their covenant obligations, or to incur the wrath of God, I want us to consider just three takeaways then as we end. First, consider from Jeremiah's ministry and the portrait of God we have here the wondrous work of the Word of God. Consider the wondrous work of the Word of God, just how powerful and effective God's Word is in stemming the tide of sin in your life, of its power and dominion over you. Its Word, we're taught, is sharper than any two-edged sword, that it has the ability to cut between bone and marrow and pierce to the even the very heart of the person, to expose them as one who is naked before God that they may cast themselves upon the mercy and the justice of God in Christ. The wondrous work of God is the one which is preached to you, or read to you, or by you, and works in such a way that you may believe it and walk in faith in light of it. It has the ability to truly transform your heart that you might be given over completely to obedience. This is the wondrous work of the word of God. But consider, secondly, Our own commitment to the ancient paths. One thing you can remember here about foundation, you can count on, is that we are committed to those ancient paths. Not to the traditions of our fathers for their sake, but we walk along those ancient paths and we pick up the relics along the way and say, I remember reading something about our fathers doing it this way. Might we learn from them by doing what they've done? We might hear and read what those brothers and sisters have left for us. We might see the carvings along the way, the answers in the books. It is the Word of God which leads us to commit ourselves to those things. Despite what the world or our council may say is outdated or outmoded, we are committed to those ancient paths of worship and His Word above all. And lastly, consider that God's ultimate act of love is not simply a warning that judgment is coming, but it is the answer that we may escape that wrath and judgment. The ultimate act of God's love, consider, is Jesus' own wrath-satisfying death for you. This is what Jesus has done. Who has come himself, as Jeremiah did, to preach God's impending judgment against sin, but he goes further than Jeremiah and that he gives himself as the answer in place of our sins, he suffers the wrath of God for you. All of God's wrath, all of the cup, full bore onto Christ on the cross. He suffers, he dies, he's put in a tomb and God's wrath is completely satisfied against unrighteousness because of what Christ has done. He's able to satisfy God's wrath because he's much like us in his humanity, but much unlike us in his divinity, he alone could fully satisfy divine wrath because he himself is divine. And having taken on the form of a servant, a human like us, he represents us, but he takes on wrath for us. He becomes both the priest and the prophet who warns, And offer sacrifice. But further than any priest of the Old Testament, he becomes the sacrifice which is offered by himself. This once and for all, final sacrifice. What is the reward of Christ's work then? It's the same reward as those who are called to walk the ancient path. It is the true rest which awaits us. The very Word of God which we are called to follow, the way, is the way of Christ. It is to which all the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, points us to. His way. He is the way. And if we walk along that path, the ancient of days, we find true rest. Let's end by turning to Matthew chapter 11. Again, to another familiar passage and hear Jesus' own words. In verse 25, at that time Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. How then are we given the revelation of God the Father? Jesus says in verse 28, Come to me. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find a rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Friends, you do not have to forge your own path in the wilderness in the sin of your life. The path of God's word has been made clear and has been trod by saints before. It is the path of righteousness, joy, and salvation, and it is the path which leads to Christ. He now beckons you, come and find rest along these ancient paths. Commit yourself to that work. Commit yourself to that way and receive rest for your soul. Pray with me. Father, thank you for your rest, which you offer us in Christ. We are not worthy of anything but wrath, because we have sinned against you. Much like Judah, we have enacted violence and oppression, even if it's in our own hearts. We have rebelled against you. We have neglected and refused your word. We have scorned it and treated it with contempt, and yet you in your gracious love not only warn us, of that consequence, but you have sent your own Son who died for us that we may not experience your wrath. So I pray for those who have not fully given themselves in faith and in trust to the work of Christ to satisfy your wrath. God, I pray that you would even now move in such their, in, in their heart in such a way that the word which they heard this morning would indeed powerfully work within them. We thank you, God, for this gift of life. We pray now in Jesus' name as always. Amen.
1: All sermons are released under a Creative Commons, non-commercial, no derivative 3.0 license. If you would like to learn more or listen to past sermons, please visit us at foundationfxbg.com.